0: Uh, it's Travis and I'm here with Adam Scott Glancy we are doing a drunk talk in honor of Halloween we got one of the spookiest scariest skeletons we know um,
1: Mr. Glancy if you'd like to introduce yourself Oh, you, you already did, Travis. I mean, what am I supposed to say that I'm, oh, and, and also I'm, I'm also, I'm still Adam Scott Glancy, despite Travis's best efforts. I am still Adam Scott Glancy and I am the, uh, one of the writers, uh, and creators of Delta Green along with, uh, Dennis Detweiler and John Tynes, John Tynes being the, the, the gentleman who kicked off the concept of Delta Green. And, uh, also kicked off the concept of Pagan Publishing, and I am the uh, last legionnaire here at Fort Pagan, manning the walls. A tie was promoted from private to commandant was casualties. So as the last man standing, I am now in charge. Uh, so I'm working on uh, the new Delta Green standalone game, uh, which will be published through Arc Dream Publishing. The Kickstarter is doing things that are truly frightening um, in terms of uh, how much money it's generated um, I think we're over $200,000 now, something like that and uh, so I'm pretty sure that a book will be able to fall out of that pile of cash and um, I'm also working on an older uh, and uh, delayed uh, Kickstarter called Horrors of War which is uh, a pagan publishing basic Call of Cthulhu uh, anthology of uh, World War One set uh, scenarios so it's all set during the great war so that's that's who i am um i I have a question for you travis yes sir um i've got the ugly part covered um just by checking the mirror but how drunk do i need to be for this exactly i mean do i just need to be like you know like two just less than two drinks in and a kind of you know uh tipsy kind of way, or do I need to be slurring my words? It's a state
0: of mind, so depending on how debased you want to become, we can start at the tips and go all the way to the bottom of the bottle. Well,
1: are are you... start? start All right, I'm going to go ahead and say you're not the first person to promise me just the tip, and it never turns (laughs) out that way, okay? It never turns out to be just the tip. All right, well, fine. I'll just, you you know, maybe you can hear this. Uh, Come on. Come on, pop. There you go. Yeah. There you go. All right. There we go. Nice glass of whiskey. Perfect. All right.
0: So... We will have your Kickstarter, uh, everybody listening in, uh, we will have the Kickstarter links in the description to the show, so you can go and join. I, as the current recording, there are five days left in the Delta Green, so by the time this gets posted, you might want to be hurrying up, and we, you might have actually missed it, but I'm sure there'll be some other way to support the Delta Green.
1: We, we promise. At this stage in the game, I wouldn't be surprised if they spend the money for one of those uh, Kickstarter extension services. Um, so that latecomers can continue to throw money into the pot. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but there's a number of services that um, for large scale Kickstarters to get to this level, it's worth the money to, to pay them to continue to collect backers uh, for you um, and uh, uh, and manage them. Um, but uh, yeah, we've never had anything that's uh, logged this kind of, yeah, this, these kind of numbers, so it's never been really an issue before
0: yeah i'm super excited i'm looking at it here and y'all are over five times your goal and still growing so just kind of speaks to the kind of the power that is delta green and kind of how deep rooted in the rpg and the lovecraftian culture it is
1: i'm a little stunned that uh it has uh it has uh held on so dear so so you know uh well over the last uh going on 20 years um You know, uh, it helps that everyone who enjoyed it when they're 20 is now old enough to have disposable income to support us at this date, which is also good. I suspect there's a certain amount of graying that's going on with our fans. But I'm also very pleased to see the uh, number of folks who were, you know, uh, playing it who were younger than we were when we wrote it. So that's even better.
0: And I know I'm one of those. I only picked it up recently, but um, I do have to ask, are you going to use the open game license for the system or is this going to be its own kind of, we need, you need to contact pagan to help.
1: Well, here's the thing. Um, the official position is that we have no position yet, uh, on the subject of the open game. License. There are several team members who are in favor of it and several who haven't offered any opinion yet. Nobody has spoken out against it that I'm aware of. Um, the core engine uh, is most likely going to be released under OGL, but there's nothing official yet that I can tell you from Arc Dream Publishing. Um, we're already using stuff that's been put into Chaosium's OGL, but mostly by uh, licensees like Mongoose and White Wolf. But uh, that's the best I can tell you about the OGL. That's that's actually
0: very helpful. Uh, yeah, I, I understand that, and uh, thank you for that uh, candidacy about what's going on behind the scenes. Um, I guess let, let's just delve right into the biggest thing. I've played the uh, – I actually have a couple of one-shots I've run using the Kickstarter rules, and I know for the drunk and the ugly, I have a much longer thing prepared that I'd like to actually send to Pagan eventually. Why is – uh? why did you decide that this new version of Delta Green should focus on the relationships and the bonds that people have between the company and their everyday life instead of the old one, which kind of was more uh, Call of Cthulhu-based and
1: didn't have these – well, uh, Strong bonds. there's a couple of there's a couple different reasons for that, and the two. One is thematic, and the other is mechanically. I mean, um, right now the sanity system is different than it is in the original Call of Cthulhu. The original Call of Cthulhu, um, your worry about uh, uh, going indefinitely insane uh, was that you would there was a time limit. I think it's like what twenty percent of your sand loss inside of an hour of game time in 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 game game time. Uh, would result in an indefinite insanity that you carry around for the rest of the game. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the thing we've changed about that is we haven't made it uh, a time limit. It's just that whenever you lose 20% of your remaining sand, which is a smaller and smaller number every time it comes up, uh, you have a chance. You, you will go indefinitely insane, or pick up an indefinite insanity. You know um, whether that's PTSD or whether that's um, uh, you know uh, an addiction to alcohol or um, uh, something else. Um, you'll pick up these. Uh, you'll pick up these indefinite insanities. Um, the bonds allow you to let something other than you take the hit. Um, you can put those indefinite insanities off by burning your bonds. And sadly, that is uh, a little bit like how real stress affects people and that you do things that uh, allow you to keep doing your stressful job, whether you're a police officer or you're in the military or whatever. And uh, you do things that allow you to keep doing your stressful job. And then what happens is the people around you take the hit. Your kids, your wife, your your family, and certainly that's you know one of the things that we you know wanted to stress uh, with this uh, version of, of of playing inside the mythos and the idea of insanity was that um, uh, the casualties are not just your personal sanity and your and your hit points. It's not just sample points, hit points. It's people around you, and uh, certainly all role playing games have this problem where characters tend to spring from the forehead of the player, you know, like Athena from the forehead of Zeus. Pow! They just exist. And they don't have any background and they don't have any, uh, they're just a bundle of stats used to smash things and steal stuff uh, and, uh, you know, have that power fantasy. Um, And certainly this is not, horror games are not power fantasy games for the most part. Um, or at least I don't think they, they, they'd become that, like uh, White Wolf's World of Darkness. they just become a superhero game uh, if, they're, if they're a power fantasy fulfillment game as opposed to an actual uh, game of, uh, of, of dread and uh, doom and, uh, uh, and tension. You know, you lose some of the horror aspects. And, um, you know, one thing that I think I've always been sort of annoyed with is I think I'm quoting Ross Payton from role-playing public radio here, where he's describing the average player character, you know, uh, back in high school and colleges. And when you're rolling them up is, oh yeah, he's a ninja who is an orphan, was raised by ninjas who died and has no family connections and nobody who loves him, uh, you know, and nothing that can be used as a leverage or held hostage is the character designed, you know, by players to prevent the GM from screwing with them, you know, um, in this very adversarial relationship, and uh, while certainly, yes, we're creating bonds and relationships in the game, and it is so that the game master can screw with them. That's kind of why you showed up. You know, there is a there is a a social contract here at the gaming table that if you're playing a horror game, you've you've turned up to be screwed with. All right, you've not turned up to punch Cthulhu in the face and, you know, steal the Necronomicon and put it on the shelf next to uh, De Vermis Mistress and the other loot you've picked up, you know, this week um, that's not how horror games work so, um, and nothing is more horrifying for characters who are uh, or, or people who are say, physically and mentally competent enough to handle the problem in front of them as a threat to loved ones who aren't I uh, mean, that's just basic. That's just a good basic genre. Uh, uh, tension is the idea that yes, okay, maybe, uh, you know, uh, our, our, our character, you know, it's like, uh, I suddenly think of Jack Ryan from the Clancy novels having a family and kids, you know, and uh, compare that to Jason Bourne who's got nothing, you know, um. Uh, Who's just got amnesia, so I don't have to worry about anybody. And, you know, that's not what we're going for. And, and and certainly in character creation, you can defer having any of these relationships and bonds. If you want to be Rust and Cole from, uh, you know, uh, 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 True Detective season one, you can have none of these pesky bonds that are going to get in the way, but you're going to feel the hits as an isolated person with nobody to, to fall back on. You're going to feel the mental hits more than Marty is, even though, you know, uh, he's got a wife and kids, right? He ends up burning those bonds during the course of uh, season one of True Detective, getting a divorce, cheating on his wife. You know, he ends up wrecking those relationships, but perhaps emerges in better psychological shape than Rust and Cole does so that's probably one of the best examples I can give you of of mechanically how how this is going to turn out, how this is going to be the difference between someone who said, oh I'm just going to be a badass and I'm just going to spend all my points on skills and not worry about these relationships and somebody who created a buffer psychological buffer of having contacts and connections and human relationships uh, in in order to uh, stave off the mental erosion that's going to happen by contact with horror and nightmare, whether human created or supernatural. So that's why uh, the focus on bonds and relationships. Some of it's mechanical, but mostly I was very happy with it because of genre reasons. If we had ejected the mechanical uh, thing about the uh, uh, no time limit on the erosion of your sanity, producing indefinite sanities. That would have been fine. That wouldn't bother me at all. Uh, What I'm in love with is the fact that players have to play characters that are not isolated, that that have a connection to the world, or they should, and they will learn through experience of what the downside is when they decide they don't want to.
0: And I agree, I think that's one of the more interesting takes, and why I'm actually super interested in the Delta Green, is that those type of horror stories, those types of genre conventions that you're mentioning, when, when the horror story is about an individual that is no tie to the world, it kind of comes off as a very it, it doesn't strike as much as when there's something to lose, and they do lose everything trying to save, you know, trying to do their best.
1: Yeah, now there's there's certainly Lovecraft stories uh which is where we're drawing our inspiration from. You got a lot of isolated uh you got a lot of isolated narrators in those stories. But you've got a few stories um that step outside that. I mean, you know, certainly the uh character from uh, Olmstead, the unnamed character. We only know Olmstead's name from uh I think some notes that Lovecraft uh, left in a letter or something. But uh, Olmstead from uh Shadow of Rinsmith has some family connections and at the end is going off to rescue his his poor cousin or whatever who's locked up in the asylum and take him off to live with the Deep Ones. Um, and um, similarly, uh, uh, Professor, I think it's Peasley from um, from uh, Shadow of Time, his whole life and his whole family is wrecked at the beginning of the story because he's taken for a ride by one of the uh, great race of yet and he spends the rest of the, the story attempting to understand why his why he lost his family how this happened to him and those are those are sort of outliers in a lot of ways family turns up in Lovecraft mostly as a as a, a way to make you feel too bad about yourself like uh, in the um, facts in the case of Arthur Jerem or um, uh, uh, or uh, shadow Rensmith. Smith um, but um Peasley and his family uh, in um, in uh out of time really stands out as one of the exceptions where it has some aspect in the story, but by the time Peasley's back from the Precambrian or wherever the Jurassic or wherever the uh, Yithians dump him off in Nakatus, um, he's um, uh, it's kind of over with, and there's no what Lovecraft does not have in that story is the attempt at reconciliation the attempt to try and he sort of reconciles with his son, I guess but his it's all over with with the wife you never hear from her again. I suspect that is somehow a reflection of Lovecraft's own divorce but all right um, but yeah uh, without without these connections, where's the horror? I mean you know um, it's always uh, a lot of Lovecraft in horror is cosmic scale so it's about issues that are bigger than what's going to happen to you. But most people can't conceive of those Stalinist level numbers of disaster. They can, you know, it's that bus crash versus a purge thing that Stalin supposedly commented on. Um, you can imagine the horror of a bus crash. You can't imagine the horror of Katya and the Forest. You know, those, the the scale is too great. So
0: you have to have of, a scaling mechanism, and so having a family helps with that scaling mechanism. Oh yeah, definitely.
1: Definitely. It may, it may also be that we're all older. There's a couple of there's a fair number of the uh, folks here who've got kids and uh, uh, and have families now that they're older. And so the 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 scariest thing they can think of is something coming at their family. You know, that's the kind of thing that will move people to burn villages and commit ethnic cleansing. You know, is the thought that their family's in danger. You can get people to do all kinds of terrible things if they think their kids. Uh, are are in the are in the crosshairs, you know. So, anyways.
0: That's really good. I actually really like the true detective going from a more modern ideal that ties into it and your the original Lovecraftian ideas. Do you have anything in the middle that you could possibly suggest um, for a, a reader or a player that might want to try and draw inspiration across the timeline?
1: Well, there's a couple of besides reading the Delta Green Fiction, which is out there. I mean, that certainly is going to... about are you talking about just general inspirations for this genre uh, that would get people in the mood for what we're dealing with?
0: Um, specifically, I'm saying the the bonds and relationships. So we talked about True Detective and how that kind of shows both sides of somebody with a family that they, they kind of batter the family relationships, but they survive and the other one doesn't. And we talked okay. about Beck and... Uh, Lovecraft with the Shadow of the Endsmith and Professor Peasley. I didn't know if you knew off the top of your head any, any well, ones a, in between there that stuck out as another good possible one.
1: Any of the there's a couple of options in the I would say in the um, which called the uh, um, the uh, extended narrative stories that we've gotten from modern television. Um, you know, uh, relationships always take hits in in in, in these shows. Um, you know, if you look at things like The Sopranos, or you look at things like um, Boardwalk Empire, uh, as people have, you know, everybody, all of our, you know, uh, gangsters in those shows have families that they're trying to protect and raise and keep um, isolated from the problems uh, of all, all that they're dealing with. Even, I'd uh, that that comes up quite a bit, even in Whedon's um, Buffy. Uh, at the beginning anyways. There's a big thing about trying to keep your family uh, isolated um, and safe from what you're dealing with. Um, So there's that aspect in there too. Um, You know, something like, uh, you know, meanwhile something like uh, uh, the TV show Supernatural, um, they very quickly eliminate all the bonds uh, for the main characters except for, Uh, the two brothers. And certainly one of the bonds you can develop is for people on your team inside Delta green. It doesn't have to be family, but uh, since they're going out on missions on a regular basis, you take an enormous hit to your sanity. If one of your bonds goes down far worse than, than if it had happened to you. Um, So, uh, you know, there's, there's that aspect as well. Um, those are the kind of things, that, those long narratives, those 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 extended universes uh, where you've got a story told over six or seven seasons, or even just one season if you do it right, um, you know, those are the kind of things that I uh, are sort of a model for a lot of uh, uh, this kind of storytelling, which we hope to accomplish. Um, we're, you know, obviously a lot of stuff we're designing right now are what you might refer to as uh, uh, con games because they're 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 demo games, they're small things that we can send out to the fans and people can get into them and use the mechanics and enjoy the, learn the game system. But um, obviously uh, uh, the, the kind of storytelling we want to do is the kind of thing that's going to take place not in a four-hour session at a convention with a pre-generated character that you're going to, you know, not have any connection to. We want you to have a connection to the character, you know? Um, We don't want you to, we don't want your characters to be as disposable as perhaps they were originally intended to be uh, back in the day with uh, the very earliest incarnations of of Call of Cthulhu. Sandy Peterson has commented that that he originally had this idea that this was the anti-D&D, that there is no character advancement, there is no, you know, going on to riches and advancement and more experience points. You're just supposed to get, you know, horribly mangled and get worse and worse and worse until you were snuffed out like a candle or, you know, or squashed or whatever. And um, uh, I, you know, sort of disagree with him. I don't think that the mechanics necessarily of the original game, Cogthulhu, mandate that. But uh, you you certainly can't play it as a dungeon crawl. You can't play it from going from one physical confrontation to another, um, just like real life. Um, that's just not the way. Uh, that's, not, that's not the way it works. You'll get worn down. You'll 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 eventually get killed. Just the the odds are against you. The percentages against you, and the dice you know representing that cold, unfeeling Lovecraftian universe will eventually turn up. Wrong. Well, wrong for you. They'll just be what they are, and it won't be to your benefit that you know you rolled an, a a ninety nine twice on your on your demolition roll. I I had that happen in the last year or so at the last Gen Con, I think it was or Gen Con before. Somebody literally you know rolled their demo roll, and demolition's roll, and fumbled it. I was like, okay, you know, uh, a fumble is a ninety six to hundred. That's a that's that's twenty percent. That's a Five percent chance, or uh, sorry, uh, one in yeah, one in twenty. That's a five percent chance of a fumble. If everybody died once out of every twenty rolls, there'd be no demolition experts left on the planet, right? So, roll your demo roll again to see how badly you fucked up. And they rolled another ninety-nine. And It was <laughs> just like, okay, what do you want me to tell you? You know, it's not good. <laughs> you you know? know, it's not that you. It's
0: fantastic, it... just not in yeah. the fantastic you want it to be.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the best part it was it was it was the poor bastard's second character of the night, you know, so that was even better. Oh, poor guy. Yeah, yeah. Having been first shot by the players, that was even better. He was accidentally shot by the players uh, while they were trying to save him from some mythos horror. They're like, quick, fire at the creature, you know, and so he rolled again, fumbled, 99 Okay, make a luck roll not to get hit. Oh, you fumbled your luck roll, you're shot, you know, bleeding out. Um, so, yeah, that's just, the, you know, the dice just being the uncaring universe and just being the, the odds and not being connected to any sense of, I don't know, maliciousness on the part of the keeper. Uh, I always find that that scares the players more than anything in any game, uh, you know, particularly a horror game. Nothing worse than a, than a GM rolling his dice in the open So you can just see what the results are. And it's not like he can fudge them, you know, once it's out there in front of everybody, because he's got to maintain some, I don't know, um, the, uh, credibility, I guess it is Mm as the, as the, as the GM. So, you know, um, I've done that where it's like, Oh dear. You know, the, the enemy attacks and they roll, Oh dear. And Oh one, um, Brian, are you wearing a Kevlar helmet? No. Okay. (laughs) That's just the way it turns out. But anyway, um, enough of that. Moving on to your other questions, I I warn you that I have a tendency to ramble. I know, and I'm actually we're
0: we're actually making good headway in the way uh, these conversations are leading, are actually flowing very nicely into the next question,
1: which you is just- we're already
0: talking about. The future of D&D, or the future, not D&D, of Call of Cthulhu, like how you're seeing the players react, and how we're growing up with it. Where do you see Delta Green as a system and as a universe and a narrative going in the next 10 years? So this is kind of a two-part question. The system of Delta Green after its release, okay. how do you see it growing up? And then the actual narrative universe, much like how this new system is a continuation of the previous setting in Call of Cthulhu. How do you see that maybe changing in 10
1: years? Well, um I'm not sure. We're going to see how the mechanics are are received. Um, we're not going to know until you know we, we've got we, we've gotten pretty good feedback. We've gone through a couple different testing sc- cycles. Um, uh, the only thing that I was ever worried about was I thought that uh, firearms were abstracted a little bit uh, in some of the earlier um, rule systems, but I believe that's you know that's being taken care of now. Um, uh, players like their their gun porn. You know, they like their, they like to know how many, how many rounds and, uh, you they know. like
0: their shoot bangs and their yeah. millimeters and their yeah. seven by six twos.
1: Yeah. They need to have their, I don't believe that is that, 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 the that, that you get as much mileage out of a wubby, uh, unless you, unless you, you make it specific, you personalize it, you, you make it, um. You ground it in the real world, and that's what guns are in most horror role-playing games. Everyone goes, oh, it's not, you know, it's not uh, challenging anymore because I have a cell phone and a and a submachine gun. I'm like, well, you had a submachine gun in 1920s Calcutta, and you could order it through the mail. You know, Um, now you have a machine gun that if you're caught with it, you go to federal prison. You know, um,
0: the stakes and, are still the same. It's just the access is easier, but the stakes are a little higher. It, I think
1: the I think the uh, option for violence was easier in the 1920s than it is today. You do some crimes to kill a cult, and then you know, uh, uh, using you know, throwing hand grenades around or uh, firing automatic weapons, and you've got the BATF and the AT and then the uh, 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 FBI and every other you know alphabet soup agency on your ass for you know looking into this as a terrorist a terrorist incident you know yeah the Uh, cowboy cops the cop the cowboys
0: of the original delta green are kind of if they were placed in today's world they would be very quickly
1: uh rounded
0: up or dealt with
1: the same thing with the frankly back in the 90s too because again we're still dealing with a world where you know um back in the day i can remember you know there's a great moment from an old james elroy novel which was this way of getting rid of corpses he has and i can't i think it's the cold Ah, uh, shoot, it's in the air it's, it's the American Tabloid series, and I, I cannot remember which book it is, whether it's a Cold Five Thousand or uh, uh, but, but or Bloods of Rover. Anyways, the point is, is that there's a bit where they, they have to get rid of a body. So they they do this marvelous thing in nineteen sixty-two, which was to take the guy steal a car, put the guy in the car, fill the car with gasoline, um, then Take the guy and fill his mouth with shotgun shells and duct tape it shut. And then fill his fists with uh, shotgun shells and duct tape it shut. Duct tape the, the shotgun shells. And then light the whole thing on fire. And when the shotgun shells cook off, it blows up his dental. It blows up his fingerprints. And I'm like, okay. And then he's burned beyond recognition. And then I'm like, well, that's pretty good. That won't do shit today. That's just a lot of effort for nothing, for no payoff, you know. You, really, you, really, you burned him up real good, huh? Okay, that will prevent him from being identified by, you know, DNA from his bone marrow or whatever, you know. So, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the violence option is much more difficult throughout the Delta Green period uh, from the 90s onward. It really is tough, at least when you uh, play in uh, Ken Heights' Fall of Delta Green in the 60s you'll be able to murder people at will and foil the forensics of the day with relative ease. Um, but not so, not so today, not so then um, or back in the nineties. Now, as far as mechanics go, we'll see how the mechanics go over with the players. Um, there's a lot of things I think people are going to like. Um, I have opined uh, that perhaps this is going to have, the, that this system, since it is not uh Call of Cthulhu seventh edition and has a many elements of Call of Cthulhu, earlier Call of Cthulhu editions, maybe this is going to get treated like the Pathfinder of uh, of D and D, you know, of uh, the Pathfinder of, of of Call of Cthulhu. Um, I certainly hope that is not the case for Chaosium's sake, because I, I I do not particularly care to uh, uh, to 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 blindside uh, a company that has been our patron and has uh, uh, helped us build this IP uh, through the use of their very, very fine Call of Cthulhu mechanics. Although at the same time, I have some doubts and some worries about the 7th edition Call of Cthulhu mechanics. Um, uh, maybe I'm being a worrywart about it, but there's, there's some things that they did in that set of mechanics that I think are brilliant and long overdue and uh, definitely have helped advance the system and make it even more playable in some ways than it already was. Uh, I think particularly of things like their, oh my gosh, their melee combat system is so much better now. Um, I
0: haven't actually looked
1: into uh, the seventh
0: edition. I've been a little swamped with school. So this, this, this sounds exciting. The, let me just tell let me
1: just say this about the, 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 the melee combat system, which I was really pleased with. They made it into a, a, a contest between two skills rather than have it go, okay, whose deck's highest, you go first, roll the dice, did you hit? Yes, okay, you hit him. Now, other guy, you roll, okay, did you roll? Yeah, you hit him. You know, and so there's just this thing where you start whacking on each other with your melee combat until one of you goes down, you know, in this sort of weird fight, attrition fight, you know, where it's a, whose hit points are going to run out first? And so that was always the standard, you know, melee fight. Now they've made it so that you just take the two skills and you compare them on a table and you roll a dice and, uh, it, you know, uh, one guy gets hurt and one guy doesn't every combat. Now there's a, a zone in between these the, the roles where both of you can get cut up if you're fighting over a knife, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In that one combat round, but it becomes a, an opposed test, uh, rather than here's your melee combat. Here's your turn. You know, that standard Dungeons and dragons, I hit you and then you hit me um
0: it's a bit it of a becomes, dance compared to a punch and judy where you're both whacking each other and whacking each other and whacking each other
1: yeah well yeah, exactly it's like it's your turn and my turn well there's no turns in the knife fight okay <laughs> there's just not and so i really think that this this new melee combat system is going to be uh in some ways more deadly uh and more stressful and in, in, in a certain sense uh and also more uh, Gritty, And I'm really happy with that. And they've got some of the rules in there that I'm very pleased with. Um, I'm not pleased with the the math that they've used for their uh, attribute system, but we'll have to see, you know, how that holds up over the years and and how that's implemented. 7th edition hasn't been released yet, um, so I don't know what the final form is going to be, but I presume there aren't going to be any major changes. Um, But, uh, you know... um, Regardless, uh, we'll you know depending on how the public re- reacts to that, I don't know, maybe people will use our system to play Call of Cthulhu. Um, maybe we'll just use 7th edition Call of Cthulhu rules to play d and uh, We've certainly tried to make it as easy as possible for that to happen, uh, that players would have no trouble converting their own 6th edition uh, characters and mechanics to the new... Um, uh, Delta green rules. So, uh, as far as the mechanics go, I can't really, I, I can't tell you where I see it going. The next decade. And, and as far as the setting goes, um, it all depends on the fans, you know, um, uh, if, if, uh, where they go, we will lead. If they stay as enthusiastically engaged, there'll be more Delta green material. Um, and certainly, uh, part of it depends on, uh, what happens in the real world, you know, um, uh, We designed Delta Green for that post-Cold War zeitgeist um, where our our public uh, seemed uh, uh, obsessed with the idea that their own government was the problem, Um, you know, uh, that uh, with the Russians and the Soviets out of the way, that this was now a world where the only thing you had to worry about was your own government. Um, And now, uh, strangely, we have a government with far more powers uh, to bedevil the um, the local population, uh, but in a lot of cases, people don't see that as the main enemy. They see that as uh, the only thing keeping them safe. You know, we have a very different zeitgeist in the post 9/11 world um, than we did in the uh, post, I guess, 1991 world, where um, the Soviet Union had just collapsed into nothing, and uh, you know, we were doing a victory lap. Patting ourselves on the back, you know, for being so uh, brilliant and having arranged for the Soviet Union to collapse, which, again, is a marvelous bit of uh, self-deception. I mean, certainly we outlasted them, but I I wonder just how much uh, American foreign policy uh, led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, I think we did a lot of things right, you know. But um, uh, uh, the very fact that the Soviet Union unraveled so quickly tells me and and quote-unquote surprised everybody in in, in Washington tells me that maybe we weren't as on the ball and brilliant as we told ourselves, you know, in the following uh, months after the the collapse of the Soviet Union and the death of the Warsaw Pact. Um, But anyways, uh, as far as the setting goes, um, we, live in a, we live in a scary planet with all kinds of scary options happening. And, um, you know, you look at things like, you know, you look at China and think, holy crap, is it being terraformed by aliens or xeniformed by aliens? Are they just changing, the, you know, the, the, uh, the entire country so that it will support a different form of life? Because it doesn't look too good for people, you know, at this point. You know, there's all kinds of horrors that can be found there. And, you know, again, uh, it's cosmic horror. It's about our scale in the universe, and uh, every day, the nice folks at NASA give us something you know to be both uh, amazed and horrified by when it comes to you know our, our... parts
0: in the universe.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, one of the ones that I found most delightful recently was the idea that um, as stars are, are born and die and uh, create new elements uh, in the course of those those reactions. That um, there's a good chance that maybe our Earth, our system, is one of the earliest systems uh, capable of supporting the kind of carbon-based life that we have. That we may, in fact, be the great old ones. We may be the first people onto the stage, uh, the first sentience onto the stage. The reason we're not hearing anything uh, beeping and humming out there in the firmament is because we got there first, which, uh, you know, is both a a awesome and terrifying prospect um, because, well, again, you know, uh, as the, the, the universe may be a big and awesome place, but uh, we were designed to live on this rock on, at, at, at a certain range of temperatures at a certain range of gravity, you know, with a, with a very, with a narrow band of nutrients and um, uh, fuel input for us. And, uh, you know, Out of space does not have any of those things for us. You know, it is just a giant hostile place designed to kill us very, very quickly. Uh, So, you know, the the world, the universe may be huge, but the world is very, very small. So as far as setting goes, no, I I don't know quite where it's going to go. It'll depend on, you know, what new things the world brings us to scare us with, you know. I wouldn't have, I would never have have designed the scenario iconoclasts, except there's a bunch of wackadoodles in Mesopotamia spending their time smashing uh, artifacts with sledgehammers and bulldozers, blowing up, you know, archaeological sites. Um, uh, If it wasn't for ISIS, that scenario wouldn't exist. And I suspect that there's going to be a number of scenarios in the future that don't exist yet that are only going to exist because of something you know, people did to scare me. You know. So we'll see what happens. The, the setting will depend on what horrors the, 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 the rest of mankind manages to invent.
0: And I think that's one of the the one of the key things that draws people and one of the, the the highlights of the Delta Green system and kind of the whole happen to be because of the cosmic horror genre is that it is just far enough in the future and it is just close enough that when what is happening it is able to bend and alter the course to fit and write and people can write and tell stories that fear, fear make them fearful as they happen in the world
1: yeah well certainly we don't want to put it uh, we don't do we're not just doing huge bends and huge changes because you know um again uh, apparently we don't have hoverboards Uh, as of what yesterday we still have no hoverboards um jaws jaws 19 hasn't come out yet um but we still got a couple years to go to see whether or not we get to what running man or do we pass blade runner already i can't remember if.
0: i don't think we've passed blade runner yet
1: yeah Uh, now if now if los angeles was beijing that would look a lot more blade if if Rick Deckard worked in Beijing rather than LA. That would seem a lot more believable as far as Blade Runner goes. Cause yeah, I think it's gonna be a couple more years before, you know, the city at noontime is gonna look like, you know, just gonna be a black. Just, the sun will just be blacked out. <laughs> you know, permanent twilight. You know, vampires wandering the streets. Mind, you know, although I can't imagine they are going to be particularly happy with the, uh, the state of their food supply, uh, under those conditions. Hooray! You get to go out 24 hours and. Boo, everyone tastes like heavy metals or benzene or, you know, stuff like that. That's the gotta be no good if you're a vampire. But,
0: um, anyway, so. so sounds like a game to run eventually.
1: Yeah, so, well, that'll, that'll probably be under Ken Heights Black, Knight's Black Agent. I was we,
0: just about to say that.
1: Uh, we're, we're not, we're not huge on vampires, um, uh, necessarily. Um, we have been trying to, one of the things that we're trying to do is, um, uh connect we uh, you know we've, we've sort of like uh for this game unlike certain other talk through the products we're not i don't believe we're importing um we're not importing mythologies into the lovecraft universe but we are going to use the lovecraft universe to explain certain mythologies um you know what i mean like the the uh resurrective hunger that accompanies um uh, the resurrection spell from the case of Charles Dexter Ward could be the sort of thing that would be mistaken for vampirism. Um, but it's not actually action- the crosses and garlic and all that kind of nonsense isn't going to help, um, you know, or uh, Bayakis with their tendency to drink blood and fly off again, could be mistaken for vampires. But um, the, I don't know that we're going to, I don't know that we're going to work, work in werewolves and vampires like, like the original call of Cthulhu does.
0: Yes. Uh, yeah, it's it's taking what is there and having it, leaving it open enough to hint at possible possibilities. But the setting isn't about knowing the answers; it's about dealing with the questions, but not answering them.
1: Uh, that's fair. Um, although I, I certainly uh, certainly I, I I don't want um, uh, I I never like designing a scenario where the answer to what was going on is well it was spooky, wasn't it? What do you mean? I don't want to go with the, <laughs> the fucking, what I would what I would uncharitably describe as the J.J. Abrams answer to, you know, why are there polar bears on the island? Because it was awesome. Didn't you see it was a polar bear? And then later they tried to tell us, oh, we, we always knew why there was a polar bear. No, you didn't. You didn't have any idea it was a polar that- bear. You stuck a polar bear in because you thought it would throw us off. You just threw us a, a curveball. Um, and then later you tried to retcon it, you cheating bastards. Um, I. What I'd like to have is something more along those uh, Michael Straczynski thing where he always knows where he's going and he always has an answer. You may not see the whole answer, but he's he's got one, you know. He's thought it through uh, rather than just, uh, you know, throwing things at players because eh, isn't that spooky? That was really weird, wasn't it? Um, yeah, but why did it happen? Well, even if the character doesn't know, and even if the player doesn't know, I really want the GM to know, mm-hmm. you know. I really want an answer for, for the GM just so that um, uh, it, it doesn't become uh, a matter of... And I sort of consider that stuff to be jump scares. If you just keep throwing weird stuff in without knowing why the weird stuff is happening, um, those are just jump scares. They're, they're really cheap, um, uh, low-hanging fruit. And some environments lend themselves to it. I, you know One of the reasons that Carcosa is uh, so popular is that you can have wackadoodle doodle shit happening, in Carcosa with no rhyme or reason because it is a realm where causation has failed, you know, that one plus one does not necessarily equal two. And, you know, math has failed and physics has failed and causation has failed and uh, uh, maybe even, um, you know, uh, the order of time has failed. So uh, you can have that kind of surrealist, And I at least have a reason why I'm having to face surrealist horror, you know, but, you know, I just keep remembering, like watching uh, Fire Walk With Me, which is all the uh, so-called sequel or prequel to um, Twin Peaks uh, way back in the day. And I just remember um, some scene taking place in an alley or a lot next to a building and the characters do their shtick, whatever they're doing. I don't remember who it is, but it's Laura Palmer or Dad Leland. and I, They they do their shtick, uh, they leave the alley, and then at the end of the alley, from one side of one building to one side of the other, some guy goes hopping by wearing a suit and like an animal mask. He just goes doinga doing doinga doing it right by in the background. And there's no explanation why this happens. There's no uh, payoff. Right, There's no payoff for this whatsoever. Chekhov said if you have a guy jumping around uh, with an animal mask and a business suit in Act 1, you need to pay that off by Act 4, and that just doesn't happen. And that's the kind of thing that, that I do not want in my horror. I, I, I would like to have some, some payoff, thank you, even if it is, you know... Magical realism uh, or surrealist, you know, I I need to have a reason why it's happening, Uh, at least one that's consistent, that's internally consistent to, to what's going on.
0: And that actually leads us to a, another one of the questions. See, you're really good at this. Um, uh, inspirations you draw on when you're writing or you're designing a game. Uh, it sounds like Twin Peaks, and we've already mentioned a whole slew of Lovecraft. I was wondering if there's any other ones or any other rules like we're talking about Chekhov's, you know, well, Hopping well, Man and stuff.
1: Well, Che-Chekhov, The Chekhov's rule was the gun. And, yes. Uh, uh, certainly, I, I don't know, where did that happen recently? Um, uh, Yeah, uh, um, (laughs) there's a film called um, Black Mountainside uh, that has a moment. It's a a very well-done Canadian horror film that will probably be available on Netflix or something like that. It showed up at the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. And they do do this moment in it where um, uh, uh, they do the autopsy on the guy and the archaeological team and announce that uh, the, the discoloration in his skin is the result of... Uh, his uh, mammalian cells uh, changing in structure to resemble the cells of a cephalopod. Uh, they never pay that off in the story. They just talk about how he's turning into an octopus. Or he's like, you mean he's turning into an octopus? The guy's like, well, more like lots of little octopuses. And then they never pay that off. It's it's creepy as oh. It's not information you want to get when you're isolated with no radio in a blizzard in northern Canada at an archaeological site. You don't want to find out that one of your... Um, uh teammates is about to break out into octopuses um but then they never pay it off and i'm like look check said, if you introduce an octopus
0: you know we need an octopus somewhere. just
1: you need gestating octopuses are gestating and in, in scene or act two they you need to have full-on octopus by act four that's all there is to it now i will say that they did manage that they did manage to make that work on the bear traps there's a whole thing about bear traps in the movie where it's like, yeah, they mention the bear traps, and then they pay off the bear traps but we didn't get in the octopus. So um, as far as, uh, as you said, um, uh, inspirations, um, certainly uh, there's you know uh, any number of inspirations that, uh, that drove the mechanism for the original Delta Green and the mechanisms that drive the inspiration for the new Delta Green are a little different uh, because we're 20 years later. Uh, uh, We're in a different world, uh, to say least, politically, technologically. Um, uh, Certainly, um, you know, the inspiration still remains at its core Lovecraft. And the idea is going back to original stories and finding material in those original stories uh, and where Lovecraft has left the door open uh, for something new. And that was always sort of his shtick was... To leave a door open in the story for something new, something different. Um, that's what how we, that's how we got Delta Green. Was there is a door left open at the end of Shadow of Renzimuth that suggests that the U.S. government and the U.S. Navy in particular uh, now understands that there is such a thing as a marine civilization that is inimical and a threat to mankind. And what would the Navy, you know, doing most of their work? on or near water, it's not the kind of thing that they can just ignore and go back to sleep and go back to business as usual, particularly at a time when the Navy is, uh, in the first half of the 20th century, really beginning to penetrate under the surface of the ocean, where uh, naval operations become a three-dimensional, rather than a two-dimensional battlefield. Uh, So um, as far as inspirations go... uh, that's a tough one. I, I I would like to be very specific, um, but I can't. My inspirations are, um, you know, uh, history. I'm a history geek, and um, um, I'm always looking around for something new and terrible uh, out there in the world that we can exploit um, some new tragedy that we can exploit exploit uh, to scare people with. Uh, fortunately, the world seems dedicated to providing us with a new tragedy almost every day. Um, and, uh, uh, and bringing those tragedies into the, you know, into uh, uh, the game uh, table. Uh, now, you know, and, and of course uh, some of that gets dicey and uh, the more mature and the more adult the uh, tragedies become. Um, but um, uh, hopefully that is the kind of thing that, uh, players are now mature enough to be able to maneuver around uh, and uh, know their group and know what they can and cannot handle. Um, So uh, uh, as far as inspirations go, you know, um, besides the the cosmic car and the weird fiction, um, I'm of course uh, always going to pick up any books uh, written by uh, people like Cody Goodfellow or uh, David Wong or uh, Charles Strauss uh, or um, uh, in the history department, I'm always going to pick up books by uh, Peter Hopkirk uh, or um, uh, <laughs> George McDonald Fraser. although he's passed away. We've lost George Frazier. Um, uh, there's um, uh, uh, a number of books that I am, I am still uh, uh, inching my way through uh, in order to find uh, new and interesting things. There's a uh, 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 I can't remember the author of the uh, uh, War to the Knife, uh, which I which is a, a history of the um, transformation of the CIA from an intelligence uh, gathering uh, organization to a d- drone strike delivering machine. Sort the of way girl. of the knife, you said. I think it's called uh, War to the Knife. Oh, um, I think it's the War W A R. Um, in fact, let me look down here. I have it. Uh... Not seeing it on my—it's on my bookshelf, but I'd have to get up and walk away from the computer and delay the podcast to go look it up. I believe it's called uh, "War to the Knife." And yeah, here you go. No, you're right. It's "The Way of the Knife." I've just found it. Okay. It's sitting sitting there next to my Mark Bowden books on "Killing Pablo," "Black Hawk Down," uh, Guess the Ayatollah." Um, some friends of mine stuffed some books on Om Shinriku under my nose and, uh, the cult in Japan that gassed the subways. And, um, it's particularly, that one is a, that's a particularly, uh, good bit of tragedy that, uh, the world inflicted on us. Um, and stands out particularly to me because, um, okay, they gassed the subway, right? You know, they, they gassed the Tokyo subways, tried to use, um cyanide, I can't remember what the gas I tried to use. I want to say serum, but I don't think that's right. Uh, it might be. But um, uh, before they gassed the subway, they did a test run in a neighborhood where they just drove a vehicle mounted with a, uh, an aerosol disperser through a neighborhood, and people all over the neighborhood got sick from the gas. And what was amazing to me in that story was the, the police turned up and did not shit their pants. I mean, they show up, they sort of realize that the neighborhood was gassed, right? And they immediately focus on this one particular guy who had a garden and had all these chemicals that he had for fertilizer and stuff. And despite the fact that the chemicals in his his garage didn't add up to the gas that was used, focus on him and just start, you know, browbeating him and taking him in for interrogations and focusing all their effort on him. Um... That, oh, it must be some guy who, you know, it must have been an accident with his, you know, fertilizer chemicals. Um, Nobody thinks terrorism. Nobody thinks this is an attack. It's completely outside their ability to conceive of. Uh, So they just walk right past it. If a neighborhood in the United States had hundreds of people get sick from exposure to poison gas, I believe even as far back as the late 80s, early 90s when this happened, uh, this country would shit its pants. We we would go out of our, we would absolutely go apeshit and turn the place upside down and declare an emergency and, you know, be on the 24-hour news cycle immediately. Um, the Japanese result re- reaction to this horror was to ignore it, which is maybe the scariest thing about the whole story is they just went, you know, okay, didn't ha- you know, it, it clearly can't be what it looks like, so we're going to reimagine it as something more palatable. And, you know, uh, that's one of the scariest things that, that I that I can think of is the idea that you can you can look something dead in the eye and just pretend it's something it isn't. Just you know, so you know, I reject your reality and substitute one that is more comforting, and that and then they just move along with their lives. So you know, um, uh, that's certainly the the the, the inspirations for. What the next Delta Green thing is going to come be? This comes from the headlines. It comes from uh, uh, mostly just what's going on in the world around me. And uh, you know, for 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 fuck's sake, we just found a a box of negatives in Antarctica from a hundred years ago, right? Left over from one of Shackleton's expeditions. It was a box of negatives that were just abandoned when they had to row back to South Georgia Island. And I mean, how is that not an adventure hook? You know, we just found Thomas Jefferson's alchemy lab, right? It, it, it is house. It, it is, it is, you know, a state. They were doing, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, restoration work. And they found this alchemy lab or this chemistry lab he had. I'm going to say alchemy because that makes a better story. So clearly, you know, we're into the, what, the facts in the case of, uh, or, or the case of, Thomas Jefferson, you know, was he replaced by an ancestor he raised from the dead from essential salts? Uh, or is this uh, Thomas Jefferson reanimator? I mean, you know, there's any number of ways that that can go south on us. And there it is. The, uh, the news cycle just keeps providing these hooks. So that's where the inspiration comes from.
0: Yeah, and I think that kind of leads into uh, the next question, which is advice for people writing. And it sounds like to me is just find inspiration everywhere, mundane things can turn into anything at any point.
1: Well, I don't think that, I, you know, here's the thing about uh, people inter- advice for people interested in writing. Um, I, I don't believe that people, I have a hard time believing that people have, have difficulty finding inspiration. Um, if you're not, if you're not inspired, then you, you, you shouldn't be writing. I mean, why are you thinking about being a writer if you are not inspired and driven to to create. I mean, I think that that once you have that, that drive, um, you're going to be inspired. You're, you're going to constantly be inspired That, that that's, that's, that's going to be the easy part. My primary advice that I give to anyone who's interested in writing is finish it. Just fucking finish it every time. That is that, that is the thing that kills me. That is the thing that kills lots of good writers Um, I have a friend of mine who has cranked out like, um, uh, she's cranked out like, she's like finished seven novels, right? Um, three of them, she's self-published and gets a little, you know, paycheck through Amazon, you know, because she's, she's published, she's, she's finished them, but she's finished them. That's the point. Uh, I have an unfinished novel that's been sitting around for a decade that is probably going to be pulled out and torn apart and turned into a collection of short stories rather than a novel and recycled in some way. But that never got finished. And so, you know, that's a, that's a fail, all right? It doesn't matter how good an idea it was if it didn't get finished. And um, it doesn't matter where it's published if it doesn't get finished. It doesn't even matter if it's published. You. The point is you finished it. You, if you can finish a story and put it down and not want to go back and fiddle with it, That is a huge success. That is what you want to be able to accomplish. And just because it doesn't get published doesn't mean squat. I mean, uh, one of my favorite things about Robert E. Howard, who wrote the Conan stories, is that he'd write these stories. He'd submit them to various uh, magazines. And if they didn't work, if they got rejection notices back, he'd he'd rewrite the same story uh, for a different genre. You know, um, he never let anything just go to waste. Uh, he, he, oh, really? That didn't sell as a pirate story. Okay, I'll rewrite it as a Conan story. Oh, didn't work as a Conan story. Okay, I'll rewrite it as a, um, uh, uh, you know, I can't remember all of his characters. I'm suddenly forgetting the name of his uh, his uh, Puritan witch hunter uh, character uh, or his uh, uh, his Texan. Uh, on the uh, out in out of the far east, who was uh, El Barak, the Swift, uh, is the character's nickname because he's a, you know faster than a six gun or whatever. Um, but he just rewrite them as other stories, you know. Um, if it doesn't work as a Caribbean pirate story, maybe I'll re- maybe he'll rewrite it as a uh, South Pacific, you know, China Sea pirate story or whatever. Change the time period from the 1600s to the 1920s. And that's the thing I think, I mean, I, and I've had a couple of things myself that I wrote and they sucked and they did not get published and there was no place to publish them. And then I could come, but I'd sit on them. And I came back 10 years later, five years later, and found a way to reconfigure it to meet a different marketplace or a different genre. And it worked, you know? Um, but the main thing that I would tell everyone is just, just, just finish it. You must finish the work. Um, you know, otherwise it's, it's not writing, it's doodling and you've got to finish. Uh, and I, uh, you will, you will feel so much better. You, you will get that rush of satisfaction and relief, the same kind of satisfaction and relief you get when you pull a piece of shrapnel out of your leg. Okay. Um, it's, it's, it's what, that is what you want to do.
0: I believe that's a very specific example. Not very many people have, uh, but,
1: I'm gonna, I'm gonna assure you that it feels just the same as closing your laptop uh, and closing that file, pushing the save button and closing it, and then, and then backing it the fuck up. Back it up, kids. Don't, <laughs> don't do that. Um, I've learned the hard way. Uh, but um, yeah, I just you know, you you gotta complete the work, uh, okay. no matter how short and how long it is, um, and it's a big deal. It's it's perhaps the most important. It's the most important thing a writer can do.
0: And that, that, that leads into another one, talking about finishing it and everything. Is uh, Next to last question we have is, if you could have one pet idea for a game, a setting, a story, or whatever, and you haven't done it, what's one that you need to sit down and finish that you would love to just be able to release into the world?
1: Well, that's tough. Um, because the one thing I really wanted to do, uh, Jeff Combos over at Exile Studios kind of beat me to it. Um, Jeff Combos and his people in Exile created what I think is the Best pulp gaming setting and mechanics set that I've ever seen. Uh, When Raiders of the Lost Ark came out in 1981, uh, Fantasy Games Unlimited very quickly produced a game system called Daredevils using their stupendously overcomplicated 1980s, we're striving for realism in pulp, that's just, that makes no sense, um, game system. Uh, to try and mimic that 1930s cliffhanger-style pulp action. And uh, various people have come along since then. Um, Champions with their Justice Incorporated came pretty close. Uh, pulp Heroes came pretty close. Um, uh, Steve Jackson Games made a very nice uh, supplement called Cliffhanger um, for their GURP stuff, but rather than produce a create a setting that Felt very pulp they ended up producing a brilliant uh guide to the interwar period between 1918 and 1939 that's sort of 21 years between the great war and the world war ii and it's a great book it's a great source book but it didn't quite for me capture the pulp thing uh, but um and there have been some good i mean uh spirit of the century is quite good too but um, uh, the one that uh, I, I'm completely in love with, uh, Studios Hollow Earth Expedition, um, Exaltidia that that system and their ubiquity dice system uh, really works for me, and it really communicates the feel uh, and uh, of how pulps work. Um, it's a you know it's a mechanic that. Uh, uh, You feel more comfortable punching the Nazi than you than necessarily shooting the Nazi. I mean, you can shoot the Nazi; that's fine. Uh, But you know, uh, uh, you would, if given a choice, you would never punch the Nazi in a Call of Cthulhu game because he might not fall unconscious and he would shoot you immediately. Um, Because you know, you're never more competent than anybody else, any other human character in the game, and you're often less competent um, than the critters. Um, but, uh, I would have loved to have been able to be there to, uh, help design a, a, pulp, uh, 1930s, um, uh, game. Um, if, uh, any of your listeners, uh, call it diesel punk or diesel diesel punk, they're wrong. There's no such thing as diesel punk. It's pulp. Uh, it is, uh, it is that, that pulp adventure, you know, sort of format. And, uh, so I would have loved to have been able to, that would have been a game that I would have loved to design and have a part of. Um, uh, Ubiquity has also been used now to resurrect Space 1889, which was the Frank Chadwick's way out in front of the um, crowd Victorian sci-fi game before uh, we clotted up Victorian sci-fi with the term steampunk, which, again, I'm not completely convinced is a real term. Or at least least it was when um, the Difference Engine came out, because steampunk originally had a feel like cyberpunk that oh look it's this world with high tech and you know you know uh, great achievements of technology and wealth and power and yes the poor still live in their own feces you know that was sort of the cyberpunk genre as the poor were still fucking poor and miserable and you know left out of all the great leaps forward in technology and Science and,
0: and how do you, and how do you relate to that? You know, there there's a disproportionate amount of technology and wealth and power among that. What with the t- with the cyberpunk, you know, how do people adapt to that? With the difference in, you know, how do they adapt to that with that given technology? Yeah, just so about cogs and eight.
1: <laughs> no, I mean the thing is that that also you, you know the current so the, the vibe of I, I would say that the 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 vibe of so-called steampunk there's nothing punk about it it's all about being in the one percent you know it's about being the the gentry you know it's about reimagining themselves as the gentry where they have all the advantages of this society hell it's it's uh well it's like you know it's like your standard dnd nobody nobody starts off playing dnd where they you know where, where their 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 character starts off uh in uh uh, uh you know the the slums of Guttertown. You know,
0: nobody starts with the villager class yeah yeah,
1: yeah nobody everyone is always part of the, uh, the, uh, the the gentry the people with all the advantages it's like well it's like any um <laughs> it's like any Renaissance fair you know nobody nobody cosplays the peasant missing half his fingers because they've been you know they've fallen off because they've been he's lost them in, in farming accidents and he's covered with boobles and you know plague and you know, nobody does that. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, everyone's always a lord or a lady and so on. And so, um, uh, but, and certainly Chandwick's Victorian sci-fi didn't make any bones about that in Space 1889. You were, you know, there was this presumption that uh, you were the vanguard of the empire going out in the ether to, you know, bring Mars and Venus under the control of Her Majesty Victoria. And so that was, you know, that was fine. But I, I, they didn't call it punk Okay, And that's why I always found that more tolerable. But anyways, enough of me bitching about steampunk. I can go on about it for hours. Um, I would have loved to have done a pulp game. I would have, And that's one of the reasons I'm still in love with um, classic Call of Cthulhu. It's one of the reasons I'm doing the uh, World War I stuff, is I'm still in love with that time period, uh, which straddles the modern age. We're, we're really becoming – it's really becoming the modern age – Uh, and most of the things that we know exist in that time period, uh, only they're powered by something other than a microchip. Um, uh, I, I hope someday very soon to write an article with The Unspeakable Oath about grandpa's Google about clipping services, where if you wanted to do a Google search in 1932, you sent a request to clipping services and they would collect every article on a topic you chose, decapitation murders, you know, uh, cause you're doing your call through investigation and they will send you every article in every newspaper around the country and around the world on decapitation murders, you know, so that you can narrow your search for the cult of the, you know, brazen head or whatever. Um, uh, these things exist in that time period. They're just powered by meat, by us, not necessarily by, uh, by chips. Um, so, you know um uh, as far as uh so that that's always the thing that I've always wanted to do and I've kind of been headed off of the past I I don't have any I don't have anything to offer uh mechanically in uh for uh Hallworth expedition but I am hoping that I will find the time and it won't be this year uh to write some stuff for these guys um certainly I run a a hex campaign uh for some friends of mine um but um uh I I don't have time to um, uh, uh, write anything for publication because it's all going into Delta Green and Horrors of War right now with Horrors of War taking the, the lead because I have got some backers who showed an incredible amount of patience so far and they need to get paid off with some results. So uh, that's the thing that's going to be happening first. Um, and I'd like to do more Horrors of War, the idea being setting Call of Cthulhu scenarios in backgrounds where maybe the characters aren't in the military but a military conflict is the thing that has created the chaos that allows the problem to
0: exist right so um to kind of touch on that and then we'll go to our final question have you heard of a game called this war of mine
1: um yes that is the one where you play the it's a computer game Mm -hmm. it's a resource management game and you play the people who aren't in the war, trying to survive in a kind of horrifying Bosnian Kosovo sort of, you know.
0: It it is inspired by the siege of Sarajevo. Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, you don't get your fucking you know uh, 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 power fantasy of uh, uh, headshot at a thousand yards. No, you're the target of the headshot at a thousand yards, and you're getting shot because not because you're on one side or another, but because the sniper's bored yeah hasn't, hasn't gotten to fire that Druganov rifle all week, and then there you are looking for cans of food that might have a little bit of little bit of sauce left at the bottom of it and pow your kid's gonna go hungry and your wife's a widow um, and that's
0: the type of setting you'd like to start to run your your i'm 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 guess I'm guessing
1: well what I'd like to do is you know, is do settings where either the players are in a situation that is chaotic a, a, an environment where the rules of society have been removed. Um, the normal rules of society have been removed and replaced by uh, this dangerous environment. Um, certainly I was inspired a little bit by the, from uh, things like um, David Drake's amazing mythos short story, Then Curse the Darkness, which was the best short story on why anyone would become a cultist. And the answer is, is because people are horrible. And if you beat, and if horrible people come and beat you down long enough, you'll reach for anything that looks like a life preserver. You know, no matter how horrible the bargain you might have to make, um, maybe it's just to punish the people who've had a free ride raping and murdering their way through your village, um, even if it means blowing up the whole world. At that, there's a point where you might not give a fuck anymore. And, and then curse the. Darkness is, is, is an amazing story on that. And so it's set in a war zone, basically. And um, uh, the idea being that um, uh, wars are these, are, are, sometimes they are these giant national efforts of, of whole nation states, these industrialized conflicts like World War One and World War Two, And sometimes they're just these things where uh, they're. Uh, they're just this thing where civil society has retreated and left a vacuum that is now going to be filled by violent conflict, um, uh, you know. Um, that sort of thing. Uh, uh, that sort of thing is the kind of chaotic environment where you can have a supernatural story happen, particularly in the modern times, and have it never be reported. You know what I mean? We live in the age of the smartphone, where everybody's got a, a TV studio uh, you know, uh, radio station, uh, GPS tracking system, you know, uh, personal Rolodex, uh, all built into their, you know, into their phone at the same time. And so it's the idea that, you know, supernatural events could be, could be missed if they're big enough. It requires, uh, being in a place where the situation is so chaotic and so broken, that that stuff could exist alongside the other horrors and perhaps be even eclipsed by the man-made horrors or you know, confabulated as a man-made horror. So the idea of setting uh, uh, horror stories in, in war, in, with the backdrop of human conflict going on simultaneously has a lot of appeal for me. So we're going to be getting a lot more, I'm hoping we're going to get a lot more horrors of war and it will not just end with World War I It'll go on to cover other conflicts, um, particularly ones you may never have heard of. Uh, If your players players are out there listening, there's a thing called the War of Canudos, which is a period in Brazilian history where an apocalyptic cult literally took over a big chunk of the country and held off the national army for months um, uh, and months and months, uh, and uh, ultimately... Uh, it it ultimately leads to a very, it would be like the Branch Davidians taking over the state of Wyoming. It was that big a problem. Um, And uh, the first couple of expeditions by the Brazilian state to go in there, just go into that region and vanish. Nobody gets out alive um, before they literally mobilize the entire army to go in. And, perform sort of this, this sort of the same trick you get from the Albengazian crusade, which is kill them all and God will know his own, where they just go into the area and just kill everybody. And it's this nightmare scenario where it's tough to tell the cultists from the investigators, you know? Yeah. Um, but so these, these kind of conflicts, I think, provide uh, sort of a disturbing backdrop to start with. So the players are already on a sort of wrong-footed, on how awful it is, and then you know you you bring in the the little extra nasty, uh, which is the um, the supernatural element. So um, I'm, you know, I've gone on so long I didn't even remember what your original question was.
0: No, it was just uh, what you would love to try and work on for like a pet project. And you covered that. And I actually you you're really good about stopping right when i'm about to ask the next question (laughs) because that is actually what you were talking about is really like really scary and i think in honor of halloween and the fact we're kind of this is currently being recorded and probably posted during halloween week um before we go do you have a scary story experience either from a game a personal experience or whatever that you'd like to share maybe
1: well there's there's a couple of them that um that John Crow managed to, uh, to, to, to scare us a couple of times when he was running games. Um, the two for one thing, um, he, he managed to scare, he managed to make a a genuine jump scare in a game around a, a table. And it was this thing where we were, it's a, it's a campaign that's still being play tested, but we, uh, the basic idea is that various people in the small community over a decade of, of uh, gaming have fallen under the influence of some sort of benign, a malevolent spirit. We don't know what it is. yet. You know, we have no d- definition of it. But um, uh, one of the things that uh, happened is that we ended up, you know, the, the little lady with Alzheimer's gets possessed. And uh, commits some horrible murders, and we eventually, as the authorities, uh, manage to apprehend her and lock her up and double handcuff her and you know throw her in a jail cell without getting killed. Um, and, uh, unlike, and we've been trying to blur in the game in a very as, as realistically as possible that we wouldn't we'd have a lot of explain, we'd have a lot of explaining to do if we put four rounds from a 12 gauge Winchester 97 into an 80 year old woman. You know, so we didn't, you know, just blow her out of her socks, despite the fact she was running through the streets at night, jumping fences, you know, because she's possessed. Um, but we managed to apprehend her and we threw her in a jail cell. And there's this is a moment where me and the other player are sitting there going, all right, you know, what are we going to do? Uh, you know, do we try and get a priest in here and do an uh, 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 exorcism? Do we um, attempt to, you know... Uh, uh, do we gin up uh, a mental health report and get her locked up at the in the uh you know uh, local state uh hospital uh you know do we i am the alpha and omega i am the beginning of the end and john just screams this in the middle of us you know quietly because right <laughs> we're right next to the jail cell right and suddenly this voice it's coming out of the old woman and it just, we just fucking, lo- we, everyone just fucking threw their dice up in the air. It's like, fuck. Oh, fuck, John. You know, Jesus fucking Christ. Okay. Kudos asshole. Okay. That fucking worked. And it's tough to make a jump scare happen around a table, but he did it. He fucking did it. I gotta give the bastard credit for that. He's getting married tomorrow. So everyone wish him uh, a, a happy and long marriage. Uh, the dirty bastard um that's john <laughs> john harry crowe my my co-author on horrors of war and he's written many many things for pagan publishing Rome uh, realm of shadows walker in the waste coming full circle um anyway so that that worked that was terribly that was scary that was a scary moment where i jumped out of my skin um certainly the best moment of dread he ever created for me was a modern scenario where we found one player finds a trunk at a garage sale that's filled with biological specimens. It's like from 1908. It's been in an attic and it's from 1908 and he opens it up and it's got like plaster casts of giant feet and it's got, you know, dung collected dung samples collected in these uh, sealed jars, like uh, things you keep preserves in. And uh, it's got uh, hair collected. And he's like, Oh my God, is this, is this a fucking trunk full of, Bigfoot stuff? I mean, you know, it's looking like, you know, Bigfoot material. And he, you know, it's from some expedition to Canada from the, the turn of the century. So he buys the trunk, we take it back to the university and we start analyzing it. And I'm like, and I just have this moment where I'm like, oh God, you know, I know what this, I know what's going to be in the poop. You know, I just know that it's going to be like human bone fragments and shit in the poop that we're going to find, you know, uh, it's it's gonna be some carnivorous skunk ape up there, you know. We're gonna do the DNA analysis on the fur and it comes out, it's some sort of hominid previously undescribed. Great, okay. And uh, what's in the poop? Well, they you know, have somebody from the zoology part look at it and we're like and we're both sitting there going, it's, it's gonna be it's gonna be human remains. It's gonna be human remains, it's gonna be fucking human remains, it's gonna be like a fucking tooth in it, you know, it's just gonna be human remains. And John manages, you know, and John goes, you know, okay, you get the report back, and I'm like, okay, let me have it. He's like, the good news, it's not human remains. Oh, thank God. It's grizzly bear. Oh, great. What? What? Fucking what? He's like, yeah, it's good. Gr- You're saying that this thing killed and ate the largest land predator in North America? And John goes, well, second largest. <laughs> I'm just like, fuck. Oh, God damn it. You know, so that we had a great moment of dread that was created, but games are tough to scare people in um, because it's tough to get you out of your seat. Uh, That jump scare was brilliant. Um, Usually when it comes to scary stuff, because I've been exposed to so much material over the years, um, it's tough to get scared anymore because you get this, you know, you're like the forensics guy who goes, Oh, wow. I've never seen a body dismembered in quite this manner before. How interesting. (laughs) Or you get jaded to the stuff, you know, and, and, um, you know, uh, back in the day, I remember reading, um, Carl Edward Wagner's story, short story sticks and being absolutely chilled by it. Just (laughs) as one person described gut watering terror, you know, um, absolutely brilliant ending, you know, where the curtain comes down right at the part where you're like, is there any way out? No, there's not, you know, um sort of like the uh sort in, in some ways sort of like that ending on uh the wicker man the original one i'd never seen the the nick cage bees oh god not the bees version but uh the original one with christopher lee and edward edward woodward and uh brit eklund um that one where you get to the end of the movie and spoiler alert everyone you know they're like, wait a minute, are we really going to end this film with Edward Woodward screaming in agony as he's burned alive in a giant wicker cage uh, while Chris Lee and Brick Eglin sing happy songs about the fucking harvest? Is that how this ends? Yes. Yes, it does. Roll <laughs> credits. Everyone lives happily ever after on Summer's Isle, you know, and, uh, you know, that that was sort of a shock back in the day that was really uncomfortable and the, you know, that, the way that, that spiral of doom wound tighter and tighter around the protagonist until he can't escape, you know, but, uh, it's gotten to the point where, you know, new stuff comes out and usual reaction to it is, Oh, you know, that was cool. That was a good idea. Yeah. I wish I'd read that. You know, that was a good idea. Um, The last few things I can think of that are really good scares, um, I would certainly throw out. There's a film that's going to be making the rounds. Uh, for, For totally uncomfortable movies, I would throw out a film called Exile, uh, it's available now. It's apparently available free on Amazon streaming or something. It used to be called the Sunderland Experiment. Uh, it's made by a guy named Alan Petke, and I'm trying to remember the guy who wrote it because he's a great guy, and I should remember his damn name. Um, but uh, it was really called the Sunderland Experiment, and it's awesome because it's a Call of Cthulhu movie. It's a it's Cthulhu Mythos movie where uh, they never, uh, they 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 never ever. Uh, uh, name-drop the mythos, right? They never say uh, Shub-Niggurath, and they never say Yogg-Sothoth. Um, they never uh, have a... No book shows up. Oh, my goodness, it's the Necronomicon. Um, uh, none of that happens. But you're watching it, and let's say that you are, you know, a fan of the uh, uh, the, the genre uh, of of... Uh, uh, you're you're let's say you're you're a fan of um of uh uh these kinds of Lovecraftian tales, um, you're gonna see this and you're gonna go, Oh, 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 yeah, okay, I see what that is, you know, um, there's gonna be no doubt, but they don't they absolutely don't, you know, rub your nose in it at all, uh, um. But, uh, yeah, Sean Blau is the guy who wrote it. The director is Adam Petke. but the story came from Sean Blau and, uh, they're, they're, they're really, they did it in a really super low budget. It's about a dollar's worth of budget. All the actors are amateurs, which is fine. Um, people will no doubt complain about the acting. Uh, but the story is fucking brilliant and was super uncomfortable. Um, and certainly the last film I saw that I actually felt physically uncomfortable watching was uh, The Last Prayer, The Final Prayer. Let me just look that up again to make sure I'm not uh, giving the wrong title. It was originally called Borderlands. Um, and um, uh, here we go, Borderlands. And uh, it was a, that's the title in the UK is Borderlands. But in America, they changed the title, I believe, to <coughs> The Final Prayer. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know why, um, there, there was a, or the Borderlands, I should say, it was the Borderlands. Yeah, now called Final Prayer. Um, that's another one that's a great, uh, uh, to me, it's a great, uh, uh, slow burn horror film. Uh, it is a found footage film, so that may, uh, change your opinion on it. But that's the that's a film that when I got done watching it, uh, my reaction to it was to have to get up and walk around the room and shake it off. I, I really haven't had a visceral reaction to a film ending like that in a very 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 long time. And um, uh, for those of you who uh, let's see the the last thing I'm going to mention because I'm really going over here, uh, these are all some of my favorites. Is there's a sh- there's a a uh, radio series from the 40s called Quiet, Please. And uh, they did a lot of good stuff. Um, they did a thing called So So High Upon the Mountain, which is about the shit that's waiting for you up on top of Everest, because it was written at a time where we hadn't gotten to the top of Everest yet. Um, uh, there's uh, there's a couple of uh, uh, really amazing uh, stuff, and it's all written by this game named Ernest Chappell. Or Willis Cooper, excuse me. Uh, uh, Chapel is the, uh, the voice actor for it. But um, Willis Cooper is the writer. And the, the sort of the, the gem out of the series is a story called The Thing on the Forble Board, which is taken from uh, the nickname for the levels on an oil derrick, all right, with a double is you know, a single, a double, a treble, a 4 Those are the four levels of the derrick. Uh, and depending on how deep you're drilling, you have to build the derrick to a certain height in order to handle the pipe that you're putting in. And um, it's this, it's the, you know, it's just what you're worried about. It's a guy working on an oil derrick out in the middle of No Well, where in, I want to say the Dakotas, which is odd because now we're drilling the shit out of the Dakotas these days, and uh, sure enough, uh, they—you um, uh, know—they're—they're they're digging, they're drilling deeper than everyone's ever dealt, drilled before, and then they pull that stuff up that has no business being down there, and it just goes south. And it's a first-person narrative, right? It's this guy telling a story, and there's that sort of comfort of a first-person narrative as you know a reader, or even you think as a listener, uh, where you think, well, the narrator's here, right? Telling a story. It must have worked out okay. And it hasn't. And more importantly, it hasn't worked out well for you. Um, the fourth wall breaks on that story as a radio play. It's incredibly effective. And the, the Foley effects, the sound effects, oh my God, are absolutely chilling. Um, I heard it one night on Halloween. Uh, up at uh, well, my college radio station was playing uh, old time radio, and for Halloween they played all the scary stuff, and that one stands out head and shoulders above all the others uh, as far as genuinely unpleasant and genuinely chilling, where you get that physical reaction, where you can feel your, <laughs> you can feel the temperature in your skin changing as your blood retreats into your into your core, you know it's uh it's that one's absolutely worth a listen and you can find it all over the internet it's been recorded and it's up all in multiple different uh, locations it's really awesome
0: thank you um, so much for this huge list i have an entire weekend to get terrified now i love <laughs> being scared
1: um, and- you're gonna are gonna be happy with them a lot of those they're, they're really gonna work for, they're really they're, i think they'll do the trick was there anything on there that you hadn't heard of before
0: Oh, all of these! I, uh, I, I am just a huge. I am. I'm studying science fiction at my school, so like, it's more of a technophilic happy happy-go-lucky. I am the go-to for the gothic horror, but I don't get the chance to reach out to a lot of horror writers very often. So any chance I get to get any material, I am voracious in getting it and being able to read it.
1: All right, all right. Check out, check out sticks. I think you'll be very happy with it. Um, a number of the people I name drop, like. Uh, Cody Goodfellow, Charles Strauss, and uh, the other guy's name is Laird Barron. Um, if you're looking for really good horror these days, Goodfellow is excellent. He's written a couple of really brilliant takes on uh, Lovecraft's Shagaths uh, from *At the Mountains of Madness*. Uh, Strauss' stuff is good, but it's not right now. His uh, his Laundry series, which uh, is very close to delta green in a lot of ways it is definitely played for laughs not quite hitchhiker's guide but there is certainly a wry humor that runs through the har that diffuses
0: mm-hmm.
1: the har um i got other good things to say about strass he name drops delta green in his work uh, and uh, name dropped it in the afterward of his first uh uh novel the atrocity archive where he went in and said, you know, what are my inspirations for this work? And he mentions the two things that weren't inspirations. And one of them was Tim Power's book, Declare, which is all about spooks, uh, spies using the supernatural. And he also mentions Delta Green, that these are both things he uh, was, people went and said, you know, when they read the manuscript, they're like, oh, did you read Tim Power's? And he says, no, don't, 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 don't just keep redoing what you're doing. Don't, don't read Tim Power's until you're done, because it'll drag your compass off true north. You know mm. and the question was, well, you know, just keep writing what you're doing. He's like, okay, and then later, it's like, oh, well, this is really good. Have you ever read Delta Green? Like, no, nope, never heard of it. He's like, don't, don't, don't look at it, don't look at Delta Green until you're done because, again, it'll drag you. And he, the last thing he writes in the back of uh, Trusty Archive is that, um, uh, Delta Green, he used to play role playing games as a kid, and Delta Green is one of the few things he's seen recently that would ever ever tempt him to pick the dice up again. So, all praise to Charles Strauss for uh, name dropping us. But uh, Laird Barron is another one that uh, really produces incredibly nasty uh, uh, cosmic horror. And cosmic horror in a a fashion where he takes these very Robert E. Howard style men of action characters who are badasses, uh, spies, uh, special forces people, um, uh, gunslingers in the Wild West, gangsters in the 1920s, and runs them up against the supernatural where they are squashed like a bug on a windshield. And uh, that, that is a reoccurring theme is that uh, being at the top of the human food chain doesn't help when all of the rules and all, you know, when <laughs> when causality fails, when math fails, you know, all of your, all of your, all the, all the skills you've honed in three dimensions don't count anymore. Uh, so definitely check those guys out. Just I just have to throw those names out of some of the best uh, folks that are writing these days.
0: Awesome. I will definitely check them out. And thank you so much for being on uh, with us for today. Uh, We're about – looks like it's about time. So if there's any final thoughts or comments you'd like to add.
1: Mm. Well, other than – this is really good whiskey. um, I'll call out to the whiskey. Somebody brought this to – uh, a Scotch with Scotch, event. Scotch with Scott event that was thrown at the um, H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival where people could apparently pay to go to an event where I would drink an enormous amount of Scotch and then whatever just fell out of my mouth, that's what they got. Uh, and somebody apparently thought that the Scotch was not sufficient, so they brought this Ransom Straight American Whiskey, uh, which apparently is, oddly enough, made in Oregon, and Does Not Suck, which sort of shared in Oregon. So I'm going to a little shout-out to Ransom Straight American Whiskey. Um, so that'll be that'll be my last shout-out. Uh, I, I, I don't know that I'm drunk, but I do believe I have had the just under two glasses uh, of whiskey uh, to qualify me for membership in the uh, the Inebriati. Which is a secret society that believes that everything uh, is improved by just under two glasses of, of alcohol, whether it's beer, wine, or whiskey. If you can just keep it right there, it'll improve all of mankind's uh, endeavors and, uh, and activities. They're also known as the Knights Tipler. You may have heard of them that way as well.
0: I'm face palming over here, <laughs> you monster. <laughs> So thank you again for having us, Internet. It was great to have you. If you have any comments, Internet, um, we will have all the links, or at least majority of the links, of what Mr. Glancy has been talking about today. And you can send us a comment, and we will try and organize something like this maybe another time. Thank you very much, sir. And with that, good night, Internet. Good night, Internet.